Yeah. Welcome to Terminal Talk, episode 99. 90, 99. Uh, 16? Can I carry the one? Yeah, 16. Oh, 16. 16. Oh. Our guest today is Brian Prasky, a logic designer, and he's going to talk about branch prediction. And like a lot of the people we have on who is an absolute genius in their field, totally understates what they do and how smart they are. Yeah, I, I love it. They come into the this, the uh, studio we have here, this beautiful big studio. Beautiful studio. And uh, they say, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. And I think he even kind of came in with some notes and everything. He wanted to be ready. And, yep. And he, I think he hit it, hit it out of the park. Of course, uh, you would expect somebody who works in branch prediction to kind of make a few guesses as to how... <laughs> The conversation might go. Yeah, and you know, I, I thought it was going to meander, but he really made it he a beeline. seems like he kind of knew what I, where we were going to go with it. Like, before we even asked the question, he was ready. Brian Preston. Set your reader to receive. You're being transmitted to another episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. We're here with Brian Prasky, who is a logic designer extraordinaire. Does that work? Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you – you said that's not how you describe yourself. Describe yourself to us. <laughs> sure. So if you, if you look at the mainframe, I like to think about the mainframe as delivering two pieces to the customer. One's efficiency and one is trust. And what I really go after is delivering efficiency to the customer. And that's my job is to actually learn about how code runs on the mainframe and make it run better and faster through repetitive stuff. So while we look at things today as big data and cognitive machine learning, and those are words that we definitely use today because they are taking a place in software. They definitely are words. (laughs) They're used somewhat too, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) We like to look at it from the hardware point of view, and what we've been going after from the hardware point of view is looking at types of that data quantity and learning for decades now. And so it's all about how do you build machines that actually, from the hardware point of view, actually learn your code, and then through repetitive iterations of running your code, make that code run faster and faster. And is this uh, application code, operating system code, or...? It's any code. We really don't care as long as you have some sort of pattern in your code. And patterns are everywhere. And patterns are actually very scary out there sometimes. Um, To give you an example of a really scary pattern... You take a look at one of the judicial systems in the United States, and there was 5,000 pardons granted in one year. And the biggest predictor of whether you get pardoned or not is how soon the judges ate prior to hearing the case. <laughs> well, that is a type of data patterns that you never think about. And so what we're looking for is patterns of how your code runs. And if there's patterns in that, there's patterns in how programmers program, and there's patterns on how your code works. And so what we want to do is take a look at as your code is running, take a look at it in real time, and learn what types of patterns that we can see so we can make that code run better and better. Imagine as you're doing a job, you come in the very first day, you're kind of fumbling around on the job. Second day, you're a little better. Third day, first week, first month, first year, 10th year, you got this thing nailed down. And the job here is as code's running, that code runs one time, it runs two times, it runs three times. There's very little code out there that only runs one time. 
maybe the code on a self-destructing missile where you <laughs> destruct the missile. Okay, that code runs once and it's done with. Yeah, Basically, you don't really clear about, care about cleaning up your memory afterwards. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so you want to be like the, the barista at Starbucks that sees you're coming in, gets the cup ready, has everything lined up, and it's waiting for you when you come in the oh, door. Oh, we got you ready to go. Yeah. And your bill's paid and you're out the door and you're happy <laughs> on your way and you got that efficiency you need. Yeah. And the amount of stuff that we have to handle is tremendous. I mean, if you take a look at a processor running at five gigahertz around the clock, we can be doing one instruction per cycle. We can be doing two, three, four instructions per cycle. So we can be doing billions of instructions per cycle. It's kind of like taking Manhattan of New York City or the lower part of Manhattan and putting it on your fingertip with the amount of traffic we got going on in there. I mean, you look at, say, um, on a chip here, we got 14 miles of wire on the chip. Um, <laughs> That's a good fraction of the subway of New York City yeah. uh, going on there, and we're doing that all. Uh, another fact there, I mean, you take a look at New York City, you're running 5 million people around the day. We're trying to run 5 billion instructions through or more per second and trying to learn what all of that's doing. And then as we learn the patterns, which we'll get a little bit more into, trying to understand which, when do you make a left, when do you make a right. If I'm going from place A to place B, where is that place? And let me get you there as fast as possible such that, I even know you're coming to Starbucks before you even decide you're going to Starbucks. <laughs> such as your coffee's ready to go, but it's not ready so early that your coffee's cold by the time you get here. Because right. That would be uh, not too good. <laughs> so can you give an example of um, uh, understanding the way that it, an operation typically runs? I might do X instead of Y. What might those X and Y decisions be? Yeah, so if you're running through code, code itself is consisted of about three different types of behaviors. One of them is execution type code. Two plus two equals four is a very simple execution. Hold on, let me write this down. This is, uh, I love the math here. <laughs> Got it. Okay. See, I, I learned something on this podcast. Oh, good. We, we kept, we're almost done. Okay, good. <laughs> now, that is in base 10, and we deal in binary, so that's not really the right answer <laughs> for <laughs> you, but uh, we'll have that lesson another day. Uh, but that kind of time today. Huh? <laughs> so that's one type of behavior. Another type of behavior is load and store operations. What are you getting from memory or to memory? And the third type of operation is what am I actually doing? Where am I going in that code? And so those three combinations of things are what really um, creates code behavior. And that third part is the branches. Do I go left? Do I go right? In reality is, do uh, am I not taken? Do I fall sequentially through to my next instruction? Or am I taken? Do I go somewhere else? And by the way, if I'm going somewhere else, what is the address of that somewhere else that I want to get to? And if you look at code mixtures, give or take, every code is different, but just ballpark it to every fourth or fifth instruction is a branch decision. Huh. I mean, you, cool. can, you can think about when you're driving. Um, when you're driving, a lot of stuff there is routine, but you still are, you're sk- every second you're scanning the road. Okay, do I need to turn the steering wheel a little bit to the left? Do I need to turn to the right? You aren't just bare-knuckled on the steering wheel, holding it straight as tight as you can and just hitting the gas pedal and not doing anything else possible. You, you do have these minute decisions to make uh, as you continue to drive. And code has a lot of decisions to make as it's doing stuff, and a lot of it gets into data dependencies. Um, if you're searching a database for a name as a simple example, does the last name begin with A? Does it begin with B? Does, it, does this letter match this letter? Or you could be looking at, say, sorting, talking about driving, looking at the speeding tickets, let's just say. Okay, was this person going under the speed limit? Was this person going over the speed limit? And if it was, what speed were they going? Let's sort sort all this data and put it into different columns or groups such that we can then do additional 
content with it or a license plate reader if you're going down the highway what what's in this picture and what is the um, license plate and does this match what I'm looking for and just so many things you can be looking at with code that involves the data that you're getting from cache memory the execution even comparisons or does A equal B is another comparison point and then what am I going to do if I match or I don't match and so as you start looking at more and more code with analytical behavior you start getting into more and more conditional stuff to look at that um, can be handled. So you're building these types of models, basically. To, I, I know what general framework to kind of put this thing into. So we have different frameworks within the branch prediction that looks for different types of pattern behavior. And we're going to start to classify things in category A or category B or category C. And what we'll start out with is treating things as a simple behavior. For example, if I am at this stoplight, do I go straight or do I go right? Or maybe a better example, if I'm at Subway and I decide to order a hoagie, do I order a steak and cheese or do I order an Italian? And the simple answer is, okay, I'm at Subway. I always get steak and cheese, my favorite (laughs) meal there or whatever have you. Uh, But it can get more complex than that. You can start saying, okay, maybe that's what you do generally. But, you know, every time I go to Subway, I don't order a steak and cheese. I sometimes want something else. So is there a way that I can actually try to predict, and by predict here, more like pattern recall as to what decision I'm going to make? And maybe if I came from work, I find out that I go this way and order this. But if I come from the ball field, I decide to order something else. So what path did I take to actually get to Subway or the branch in my code that I'm currently at? So do you profile um, a large block of code? Is this happen like, oh, I always know that this program is going to run, or... Is this happening in real time as as I'm executing? So this is happening in real time. It's all in the transistors in the silicon. And what we're looking at is when you have a pipeline for a microprocessor, we'll talk a little bit about that to give an idea of what that's uh, designed as and where this fits into that picture. So if you look at you had the very front end of the pipeline, which is your branch predicting going on, which way am I going to go? Um, and then by the way, if I know I'm taken and it's to this target, tell the iCache, go fetch here instead of fetching sequentially. So then you get to the iCache, the instruction cache, where you actually get your instructions, your program that was written. And you're getting the program from the path that you think you're going to take through the program. And you start fetching that from the cache. Those instructions then make their way down to decode. Decode is where you actually take the raw iText from the cache and you figure out, okay, is this instruction a load? Is this instruction a store, an add, a divide, a multiply? What is it? And then you send it down to the pipeline uh, to the out-of-order engine. And there we look at doing things no longer in order but out of order. So you may have, say, three instructions, A, B, and C. And B may be dependent on A, but C is not dependent. So I can... It may take a while, but when I do A, it may take a while to actually before I can actually execute B because that's the way for the A result to compute. Right. So now I can do A followed by C because C is not dependent, and then do B. So that's the out-of-order engine in the machine. Try and create as much parallelism as possible in the machine. And that's going to send it down to your load stores to go off to your cache and memories to get your content and off to your execution units, your fixed point, your floating point, your SIMD-type engines to actually do the execution of it. And you said all this happens on the silicon. All this happens on the silicon. Yeah, if you look at the... Holy s- crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, times, times six billion. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I was expecting you to say that this is like 
uh, microcode or something like that. But this this is the hardware itself making these. We need to perform real-time. If you look at a chip, there's about 6 billion transistors on the chip that contains the microprocessor, the L1, the L2, the L3 cache, which is up from about 4 billion-ish on the prior generation. So you can see what you can get out of a technology in and of itself going forward. And on these um, transistors here and on the core, uh, if you go back two generations, there was eight cores. If you look at the current machine, there's now 10 cores on that chip along with a level three cache. And so all of those transistors are doing this pipeline along with this branch prediction that I talked about. And the branch prediction is learning at some point in the pipeline and then playing it back on the front end to help steer this thing real time. If you actually had to wait for a branch to resolve, you'd be taking a long time. You actually no longer at the front end from fetch and decode be able to say, hey, here's instruction A, and then by the way, you're going to instruction Z as your next instruction. You have to wait till you got all the way down the pipeline, another 20 plus cycles uh, to get down there. It'd be kind of like you were driving, and every time you got to an intersection, you have to wait for a police officer to come by and say, which way do I go next? <laughs> Doesn't quite uh, get you to your destination very quickly. Right. So you really have to speculate as to, I'm going to go this way or that way um, before you really know based on pattern behaviors and such that you can be delivering things back-to-back-to-back-to-back. Uh, to back to back to back. Um, going back to your coffee example, if you uh, get that one coffee, that's great, but you can't wait till that customer pays to go get the next coffee ready. You better be getting coffee A, coffee B, coffee C ready, such that when those customers come, you got your assembly line essentially ready to go. Here's your coffee, here's your coffee, here's your coffee, not waiting. Okay, you go up, here's your coffee, go pay. Customer, you're going to have to wait for that person to pay. Okay, now I can get your coffee. Wouldn't go over so well. Uh, so we really have to go after delivering as much efficiency and uh, low latency as possible. We call that the DMV model. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've talked about a bunch of this stuff. Um, is is this unique to the mainframe, or other? Do they not do branch prediction in, on other platforms? So branch prediction is really a requirement if you want to. Um, even be in the realm of competition or even not be um, a decade behind in performance. Uh, you can look at branch prediction that's been in there for decades. Now, what's been going in over the years keeps increasing. I'll elaborate on in a minute here. But if you look at, from a mainframe point of view, from a power point of view, from an x86 point of view, whether it be Intel or AMD, there's all types of branch prediction in those machines, and every system is continually improving it generation to generation. One of the interesting things, if you take a look at some of our workloads, which are very large in the footprint size. A couple machines back ago, we went from a one-level design to a two-level design. Having a multi-tier design is very common in the cache. Um, and when I say multi-tier, it's usually three or four levels of cache before you get to your memory. In the branch prediction, it had historically been one level of hierarchy, if you can call it one level hierarchy. <laughs> Now, a couple of generations back, we added a second level in, which um, is not a common thing to do. And if you take a look at what that did is on some benchmarks that are very intensive on instruction cache footprint, the entire system got a double-digit performance gain on it. I mean, if you take a look at a processor today trying to get 10 20% generation to generation, um, is a strong stepping stone in today's realm with the technology at the rate it's going and what's all being done. And here, we're not talking about just the processor, but the entire system performance was going up by double digits just by going to a second-level tier um, through 
the branching and keeping track. And what that really did was it was a capacity play. We went after, instead of keeping track of somewhere between four to 10,000 branches along with their target addresses, if I am taken, where am I going? Keeping track of even more branches from a not taken point of view, just going sequentially. And if I go back, see that second level table now is 128K, 128,000 branches that we keep in capacity. Um, back then, it was around 96,000. And that's that's like your, your library of models? So Yeah, so those are the things that we have seen in the past. Okay, because I was, I was going to ask, you know, obviously the, the, the CPU is uh, read-only. Uh, how do you do analytics and, and learn? And it sounds like you, you have to just prepare. So when we could talk about the CPU being read-only, um, we got to say, what does that really mean? If you take a look at the data cache, for example, you are always writing data. I mean, you can take a look at a simple web page that says, enter your name and perhaps um, something you may not like to enter is your phone number into some page so they can call you back. Yeah. All that's going through the CPU, and so they have to actually go off, and then we have to modify stuff and then write stuff out. So while the transistors themselves are fixed and they can't be changed, they are causing content to be written out to the cache's structures. Okay. Uh, same thing with the branch prediction. Uh, those latches themselves are hard-built in silicon, but the actual content that can be stored in those cells can be changed. Am I storing a zero or am I storing a one? And what does this content represent? So that stuff is being changed, and then we have to store it in tables, um, arrays where you can think about memory being an array, similar type of thing here, but it's at the cache level. So we have, a, if you will, a level one meta cache and a level two meta cache now. And so that cache has uh, up to 128K, where it was 96K, and before that it was even 24K when we first introduced it. But the more we can keep track of, the more that we can go back and recall. And that's also important because when you haven't had something for a long time, it doesn't happen as frequently that you have to go that far out to say, what was that? But when you do have to go that far out, you pay a longer penalty because now you have to go out that far and you also have to potentially relearn those things if you don't keep track of them. And so by keeping that around, not only can you bring it back for quick recall, but you can also use that metadata now to go off to, for example, the iCache and say, you know what, not only do I know which way this branch is going to go, but I also know you're going to go here. So go get that data from the iText or the instructions from the iCache cache and bring it in because that's what I need next. I, I'm running low. I'm going to be running low on sugar. Go get me another five pounds of sugar. Bring, right. it, bring it in here. There's really three parts that come into play there. There's the accuracy. Am I taken? Am I not taken? How, how accurate am I? Can I do it with 100% prediction accuracy? We will never hit 100% prediction accuracy. Um, if we did, it'd be kind of scary because it would basically mean real dominance. <laughs> uh, you could basically ask the computer anything and it could tell you the answer. Um, I mean, you could ask for the lottery numbers and uh, take all the lottery. Why is this the worst thing in the world again? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't share. That's why. <laughs> I ask again. <laughs> <laughs> there may be somebody else out there like you also who yeah. <laughs> won't share. And now we get into a new conflict. Yeah. We get together on Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably at the anchor, no doubt. Yeah. Mm. The so, anchor, so, Broadway and Kingston. <laughs> A better way to drink. <laughs> I might get a free burger for that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so we got our accuracy. So the first one is accuracy. <laughs> the first one's accuracy. The second one's capacity. Uh, how, how much? How big is our memory? How much can we retain information-wise? Because if whatever we can retain, we're, if, if we were 100% accurate, um, not there yet, um, 
how much can we retain? Because that's stuff we can't retain. We can't be accurate on it at all. So we got accuracy, capacity, and the other one's latency. Once we know stuff, how quickly can we turn that stuff around? So, for example, if I have a instructions A and B, A is some execution thing, B is a branch, and I'm now going, it's taken, I'm going to instruction C somewhere else. How long does it take me to get C and bring it in? Um, if you just do a quick redirect, you may be taking three or four cycles to say, okay, I decode that. Let me go refetch this thing and go get it there. And, but if I can go ahead and actually fetch it before I even know I am getting to decode, I can, in theory, send the branch and the target down to decode together and say, here's your branch. And by the way, when you actually find out it is a branch, here's the thing right after it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you really want to achieve is you want to achieve 100% accuracy. So you're always correct in theory. You want to achieve capacities that you always have everything to be correct about, and you want to achieve zero latency such that whenever you have a branch, you can deliver that very next thing actually in parallel with it. So that's the goal. The question is, how close can we get to that? And if you look at what the industry is doing, it's a very competitive game out there with regard to accuracy. The capacity, we have an advantage on there. If you look at how we design our chips, um, you can look at workloads from two sides of a seesaw, if you will. You can look at them from a heterogeneous side and a homogeneous side. Things are doing the same. Things that are very different. And you have to find that balance. And if I wanted to design something for a single workload that was potentially very variant, I would design a, a chip that had one big core on it, and that's all I'd have. And if I want to design something that's very homogeneous, I could design a chip that has hundreds or thousands of cores on it, a GPU, for example. Right. And the code has to be very... Um, strict in its way and it's very limited in what it can do because it has these limited GPU processing engines that can only do a limited amount of stuff and you have to design for that and you have to be very specific in your programming to do that. But you get very good throughput but you have to be very knowing of the exact chip and be very rigid on what you build from a software point of view there. So what we want to look at is how do we design stuff that is very variant from a program point of view. We can handle a very large set of workloads. And even if the customer doesn't optimize it completely, the hardware will go after trying to optimize that as much as possible. So you'll see that we have a smaller core count uh, than some other designs out there. For example, take a look at power. Power is going after a different balance on that scale. They have more cores on their machine. But we have fewer cores, but those cores are more powerful in those individual cores. They each provide an advantage to the customer. But with that, we actually do go after larger caches, and that includes the metacache also, or the stuff that contains the branches. And and via that, we have a much larger capacity. And so that will help us uh, take a leadership position in that area there. So you talked about the metacache. The metacache, if I understand correctly, is a cache just for instructions, or are we actually keeping metadata around the data as well? So we really have three different types of caches in the machine. We have instruction caches, which hold the instructions, the iText, what instructions are in your program. We have the data cache. That's what holds the data your program's running. If I'm looking at names, it holds all my last names, or it holds the record that my name is in along with my social security number and everything else that's out there. Then we have the meta cache. Now, the meta cache is not something that the software designer provides. It's something that we learn over time and then keep to ourselves, if you will, inside the machine that we then replay back to help your code run better. There are ways to look at that metadata to actually be able to relay it with the software so that you can go after the ultimate performance gains. But for a lot of that, it's really within the machine that we keep leveraging it over and over again. 
Now, that metacache classically has been referred to as branch tables or something that holds branch prediction. But there are other types of metadata out there also that one can look at. And I really like to think about it more as a metacache and not a branch cache because while branches are kind of the poster child for where you focus on the transistors for learning things, there's actually a lot more things to learn about how your code behaves than just did it go taken or not taken with regard to making your code run as fast as possible. So, so knowing all this stuff, I've, I've listened to this podcast, I'm all excited about you know, branch prediction and, and uh, all that stuff. Is there anything I can do to better utilize uh, what I've just found out about, or is it kind of just keep running your stuff and we'll support you? No, there, there's always things that a software designer can do better. One of the things that we try to do on the machine really is, even if you have, quote, garbage in from a software behavior point of view, we really try to make it perform as ultimately as possible without you having going in and tuning it. So code that is not written to be optimal performance, the hardware that we design is really out there to try to make your code perform very well. At the same point, if you give us a very well-written code, we can even perform potentially even better than that. So one of the things, for example, is every branch that you have is taken has to be an entry in our table to keep track of it. If you're able to have your code just go straight line and not branch off to some place and just sequentially go through all the code, we will perform better. You can think about going back to driving a car. If I'm just going down a drag strip, it's a lot easier to go down a drag strip than make turns on an indie race where you have to turn left and right. Mm-hmm. And so the more you can go straight, the more we can keep the on the gas pedal and just go as fast as possible. And while we try to slow down as minimal as possible for those turns, <laughs> those turns do throw you for a little bit of a slowdown that you have to go through. So, so uh, kind of two parts here. Um, you seem very excited about what you do. And I'm curious, you know, how, how do you um, continuously find new things to get excited about in your job? And, and you know, how, how did you get into this? Yeah, did you, when you were five, did you say, I, I want to do branch prediction when I grow up? I wasn't that good at branch prediction at that point <laughs> at my age of five years old. Going through high school and things, I knew I was good at math and science. English and social studies were not my points of the greatest enjoyment possible, but... Um, <laughs> kind of ironic given that branch prediction is all about history here. (laughs) (laughs) So it it took me along that path. And then in school, after taking a few different engineering courses early on, I found that electrical computer engineering was really a point that found an interest to me. And I I really wanted to kind of combine that with something that was continually learning. I like to learn. And it seems only rational that your hardware should also learn. (laughs) So why not combine those together? And if you look at my career, you can sort of divide it into three phases. When I first came in here, I was actually working on some of the branch prediction and eye fetching early on. And we really ramped it up back in the 2008 time frame where we were prior to that. Uh, before that, we were in the 1 gigahertz range. And back on 2008 when we came out with a machine that went about 4.4 gigahertz. And while a lot of things really pushed the frequency up and really gave us great performance, we really pushed the IPC, the, the number of instructions that we could get through the front end also, which really gave us a great boost. And that was kind of that part, but I was kind of siloed in what I was doing. Siloed in the sense of a mentality point of view and not looking at the entire pipeline. Second phase, I really got involved with going down to Yorktown Research and starting to take a look at sort of the other end of the spectrum of what they're working on where you really have software optimizations going on. And so that really gets me into my third part now. says, okay, if I take a look at what software's doing, with GPUs and everything, what we're doing with CPUs, what is there to learn about there, and what else can we 
figure out from all this that we can apply even more learning to our designs to make them run better. And so you start looking at saying, a lot of things we've done, we've taken things and put them to the next level, but there's still some chances to be radically different. And that's what really gets exciting is saying, what hasn't even been thought about yet? And how do we take that and really bring it to the customer, take it to a whole new level for us? It sounds like you see that there's still quite a bit of work to be done in this space that it's not like, well, we're we're pretty much done or we, we're, we're close enough to 100% or, you know, what would you say you're not at 100% accuracy, you're at what, like 98%? Or? It, it really varies in the workload. You have some workloads that can be 99 plus percent. You have other workloads that could be in the 80s, depending on how varying your code is. I mean, if you're trying to pick out lottery numbers, <laughs> trying to branch predict that's going to be very, very low accuracy. Right. It really depends on what data you're working with. I mean, we're very up there with the industry in the upper 90s in general. But when you start throwing some very complex workloads at it, um, you just can't do a good job. So, there's one question there is, well, what can you do? And there, you, that's really what gets into the software saying, what can we do to really create code that's optimal for it? But we really have to look at it from a three-point, capacity, accuracy, and latency, taking a look at those three things, saying there's a lot more we can do from latency, there's a lot more we can do from capacity. And then going back to metadata, it's not just about branches. It's about a whole slew of metadata. And if you start looking at what you can do with all that metadata, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> So you obviously see a lot more of the granular details of the chip than we do. Um, you talked a little bit about the, the pipeline and the cache and stuff like that. Can you kind of break apart like the more important parts of the chip that you uh, you see in your design that we should maybe be aware of? So I, I'd really break it into four pieces. Each of those pieces can be broken down further. And when people talk about things, it's usually that finer detail. If we take it from a high level, there's really four things here to worry about. There's instruction flow, which includes the caches, the branch prediction, the decode logic. There's your store data and your load data, your caches that you're taking place to actually do your, get your data from the caches memory and bring it back in and work with it there. Then there's your execution and throughput statements, your FXUs, your uh, fixed point stuff, your floating point units, your SIMD, which is your wide um, operational type content of data along that line. And then finally, the other one, which is kind of a umbrella is just general software thread support. Now, when I talk about software thread support, we can talk about sort of in three ways. You have things like address translation going on. That allows you to actually have more than one program running on the machine at one time, so they can all work in their own virtual addresses, but they all have their own memory on the system itself. Then there's things like SMP, which allows multiple processors, multiprocessor type stuff to be running, such that now you can have multiple processors in a system and have them working together. And then you have things like SMT, where you have multi-threading going on, and that allows multiple software threads to run on a single core. So we can really take a look at it from those four pieces, and then any of those four pieces can really be dug down into deeper. Everything we've talked about today really focuses on that first one here, sort of the instruction flow, and how do you make those instructions flow smoothly? Whether you get them quickly, they build up a backlog for the out-of-order engine, such that you can issue them in any order that is logically uh, resolve correctly. So those are the four pieces that then make up the stages of the pipeline that we talked about before as things flow down through it. So I, I have one more question. I, I realize we're running a little low on time, but one of the things that we always talk about having the mainframe be better is that it handles mixed workload um, at the same time, right? Is there special issues in branch prediction because of the fact that I keep swapping in and out lots of different things. 
So we talked about the heterogeneous to homogeneous type workloads in here. We're talking about heterogeneous where you have a bunch of different workloads running on this thing. And you do want to run at very high utilization rates in the 90s constantly with the peaks at 100. You don't want the system to crash, and it doesn't crash. And so what do you have to do for that? So there's a few things that have to go on. Really, you want bandwidth that's really there and utilized. You don't have these long trailing edge delays oh, I have to wait behind guys A, B, C, D before I can go do my particular thing. And so to do that, you really want to look at the hierarchies that you have. So from a cache point of view, making our caches very big so that you can get greater hits in your low-level caches, such as those caches that are higher up, further away from the core, have less traffic coming to them from multiple cores, so you don't get caught behind those large traffic jams. At the same point, from a metadata point of view, you want to be trying to turn things around as fast as possible such that you can get those fetches going on sooner. And you can start actually building a backlog of, I need to go fetch A, B, C, D, because I know that Joe, Sam, and Charlie, and Elizabeth are coming in for their coffee tomorrow. So let me get that backlog all going such that I'm like, okay, here's cup one, here's cup two, fill it up, fill it up. Create that assembly line. And it's all about creating those assembly lines and keeping low latency to really allow those workloads to excel on the Z platform. I want to thank you, Brian, for, for spending this time with us. This has been really awesome because now now I feel like all my code is horrible. <laughs> Someone is secretly judging you. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? He called it garbage code. Yeah, I, I heard that. I, <laughs> I was hoping you hadn't. <laughs> no way, man. Here, I didn't say your code is garbage code. I said no, there I, are I, garbage I, code I out there. Heard, I definitely remember I that. definitely heard garbage code, Frank. Yeah. But if we can run your code that well, think about how well we can run other people's code out there. <laughs> See, your code runs better. Mm-hmm. That's what they're saying. Hey, as long as my uh, lottery number prediction code works, <laughs> that's all I care about. Call it whatever you want. Paychecks in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't predict that he was going to be that good. <laughs> that was 100% net new information for me. I I just assumed all the stuff worked the way it works on my PC. <laughs> Um, we do want to thank people for, uh, we actually have a second, a second review out on iTunes now. And I'll tell you, you know, if uh, we get a third one, oh I'll, boy, I'll actually give that person money. I mean, if it keeps up at this rate, we might have four by the end of the year. It's a goal. <laughs> um, of course, we encourage you to go out to Twitter, twitter.com slash Terminal Talk. Uh, send us emails, contact at TerminalTalk.net. Yeah, and don't forget to check us out on Reddit. We're always paying attention to the slash r slash mainframe. And uh, we've got a couple events coming up, too. You might want to catch us at. Yeah, I really would like uh, to let people know that we're going to be at uh, Tech U in December. IBM's Technical University. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff going on there. And um, maybe we can record a few episodes from there. We're going to certainly look into doing that. Uh, we'll get all the gear ready. Uh, you got your slides already now, or are you going to wait for the, the train ride on the way over, or what? You're supposed to do slides? <laughs> I, I think they still expect some amount of slides. Well, you know, I, I'm not a person for doing a lot of slides. You're a big animal picture kind of guy. Yeah, so maybe I'll just create that one good slide. <laughs> the, the good slide? The good slide. I, I think I think everyone knows what you're talking about, too. The, the good slide that just has everything that could possibly come up, at least... Yeah, people love that slide because you can say, oh, look, it's it's on this slide. Yeah, and um, God forbid there's an actually open space of white in that slide. No, 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 that doesn't matter. As long as everything is on the slide, that's all you need. Like it, it, the, the bottom left corner has a picture of a cloud. 
right? <laughs> uh, somewhere in the middle, there's a stack that says VLANs, and then top right corner just ends with DevOps. So if anybody says, well, are, are, are you, do you cover? Yeah, it's, it's on my slide. It's on my slide. I can send you the slide. Yeah. And you can look at the slide and go, mm, oh, yes, I, I, I saw that in a slide somewhere. I think it's, it's covered. Yep, yep. Well, and of course, uh, anybody can present to that slide. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, here, here's what always bugs me about the, the good slide and the people that present the good slides. If you're using PowerPoint as a teaching medium and all you're doing is reading slides, what you've created is a book. <laughs> it's called a book. If you have page after page of text and it doesn't require a person to read it to you, that's a book. Well, and, you know, it's a horrible way of documenting things. You know, it's PowerPoint, it's not even a good book. Right. <laughs> Except for the good slide, of course. Oh, the good slide. Yeah. The best. So we'll have to put together a good slide and just, we'll both stare at it and go, hmm. Mm. And then move on to another big animal picture. Did that phrase, big animal picture, exist before you came along? Or <laughs> I can never tell if they're, if they're referencing what's on it or you when they I, say big animal oh, picture. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, the fact that I block out most of the slide, is that what you're trying to say? I was just going that you're an animal. Oh, okay. You're an animal up there, Frank. Oh, that's that's not the way I took it. This took a turn. <laughs> Rather dark one. It and, really and did. Not very complimentary. No, not at all. <laughs> okay, so uh, Tech U in November. Um, yeah, we should put the date in there somewhere. Do you know when it is? So I've consulted the calendar. Uh, IBM Z Technical University, November 13th through the 17th of 2017 in beautiful Washington, D.C. Ooh, ah. Uh, yes. We'll have to put a link to uh, to register on our uh, Twitter thing. Maybe. Yeah, yep. We'd love to see as many people there as possible. It's always a, oh, a great event. That's right. You've heard the show now. <laughs> see the guys live. Ooh. Yeah. Thank you for listening to another largely enjoyable episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Later. <laughs> Old Man Charlie really is out. <laughs> You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off. <laughs>